Welcome to Ogilaf Nunagus, Conversations on Irish Mythology, with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson and Isolde of Bolochon Carmody. Go to storyarchaeology.com for stories, articles and much more. We're doing this for the love of it, but if you would like to donate via the website, please feel free. Midwinter Special 2015 Fair's Fair. Gifts, gatherings and gluttony. Well here we are, right at the peak, or perhaps a little bit past the peak, of what's now known as the primary gifting period. One of those awful terms. And what it really means is that we're just surrounded at the moment by Christmas markets and craft fairs. Yeah, they're ubiquitous at this time of year. Yeah. It's gone further though, now it's become a popular thing to get on a plane and go to a craft fair somewhere else in the world, yeah. go to the winter fairs. There are plenty to choose from. My brother and his wife, earlier this month, they just disappeared off to Prague. Yeah. And the only thing they came back and said was, well, it wasn't as good as Budapest. <laughs> oh dear, become quite the aficionados then. <laughs> Well, it's not only the people who are buying, but the people who are selling who are obviously uh, yes. rather busy. A dear friend of mine, Caroline, also known as Unsnag Brack or Maker Magpie, about a week ago said, oh, I've got to learn how to do stop motion animation this morning because she wanted to make a little promotional film with her Little Red Riding Hood felt finger puppet kit, which is part of what she sells yeah, her oh, craft for, for Christmas. And yeah, but she was there messaging in the morning going, I've got to figure out how to make blood and puke out of felt. Which <laughs> <laughs> is I, not an everyday problem. <laughs> I used to have enough problems when I was just selling pottery. Yeah. Whatever about this perennial moaning about, oh, Christmas is become too commercialised. Some of these winter fairs, they have been going for quite a long time. You know, there's ones that still have their medieval character. Like Strasbourg or Vienna. Exactly. You know, and they really have been around for centuries. Some are not as ancient as you might think. <laughs> when I was looking around online, I discovered that Manchester's world famous winter fair is in its 16th year. Ooh! <laughs> the point is that they are now everywhere. There's lots of very good ones that are worth a visit. We might sound like we're putting them down. We're not. There are plenty worth a visit. We've got them here in Ireland in Limerick and in Galway. There's the big RDS craft fair where you have to pay to get in the door before you even buy anything and where the sellers also have to pay to get in the door and of course here locally we couldn't pass by without plugging the docks winter marsh in Carrick where we are there are some fairs in Ireland which have been going quite a long time mm. but they're not necessarily at midwinter no I mean one of the most famous ones uh, both here and abroad that still goes is the Puck Fair which is in Calorglin and County Kerry now there are plenty of legends, some quite wild, <laughs> which suggest an origin for the fair, but there's no written record about when it began. The earliest it can be traced back to is a charter from, I think it's 1603. Now that would be James I granting legal status to the existing fair. Yes, yeah. But it's a very interesting phenomenon because it does involve getting a big he-goat down off the mountain. And it's the same he-goat every year, as far as I know, or as far as I've been told. Well, not since 1603. Well, not, no, <laughs> obviously not. Occasionally there has to be a certain <laughs> succession, shall we say. But anyway, a consistent he-goat brought down off the mountain, enthroned in the middle of the street and called King of the Fair. He is the King Puck. Mm. But this is this is an August fair. This is Lunasa. It's not a midwinter fair. There are more fairs of ancient origin in England, 
both pre and post Norman. Yeah, but then the documentation is better, particularly for England, but for Britain in general, better than in Ireland. Either documentation has been lost down the years through one thing or another. In a lot of cases, documentation never existed to begin with. So mm-hmm. in a way, we've got such good historical records in the country next door. It can be interesting to compare. It can. And for anyone who's interested, there is a really good detailed catalogue of English fairs online. Mm. And we can put up a link to that as well. We will. We'll put that up with this episode. Before about 1200... Many markets in England were held on a Sunday. Yeah. I suppose that's the day when people were already gathering together at churches. So Mm. they were held at the churches or in the churchyard. I mean, markets have to be held in a set place and buyers and sellers have to know where to turn up and when. Yes, So Sunday after church is a really good time. It is. The oldest of them were held in the churchyard, but that could be just because it's conveniently near the church. <laughs> well, yeah. But also, uh, weren't a lot of those very early fairs connected with the celebration of whatever the local saint is? Like, we'd have pattern days here now. Oh, almost certainly. And some of the earliest saints themselves show direct connections with oh, the genie Loki of pre-Christian times. Mm-hmm. And those fairs seem to have been held at assembly places which were already ancient long before 1100, before the Norman times. Well, absolutely. And we do find a similar pattern here in Ireland and that a lot of the very earliest Christian churches, a lot of which were known as the Dovnach churches, and that's often retained in a place name, they were positioned very near to the great assembly places. And there was a kind of a continuity of authority as well as a geographical continuity Mm. that was happening with those early churches. We'll come back to that a bit later when we talk about Mm. the Irish gatherings. The Normans tended to be a conventionally pious lot. Oh, they were a bit. Sometime during the early 13th century, there was a movement against these Sunday markets. Mm. They definitely didn't like them. And what's more, they didn't like trading in cemeteries. (laughs) This was considered to be a bit off. (laughs) But as we keep on finding, everything changes with the arrival of the Normans, whether it's here or in Britain. After the Norman conquest, like everything else, the right to grant markets and fairs was suddenly considered to be a royal franchise. Weren't a lot of those royal franchises very much bound up in the authority of religious institutions? Well, yeah, you get the impression they were granted mostly to religious Mm. institutions. A good example is in the Cadvile stories. Mm-hmm. They're quite fun. There. Remember the one where the monks were worrying about how much cash they'll make from their saints fair? Yes. That's just the way it was. Exactly, yeah, a real revenue raiser. I was thinking of one example of a fair, one of the earliest, is the St Bartholomew's Fair at Smithfield. Now that's said to have been established by a monk who'd been Henry I's jester, and he got his charter as early as 1133. Funny enough, he's one of those characters who used to get into the school reading books oh, when yeah. I was at school. <laughs> yeah. I can even remember his name, I think. What was it? Raher or Raher? It's R-A-H-E-R-E. I know that. Yeah. And anyway, his fair went on right up until 1855. Right. When it was finally suppressed for being a place of vice and debauchery. (laughs) Well, at least that proves that even medieval fairs were still a good bit of fun. That there's always been entertainment associated with these kinds of events. Well... I would guess that merchants were absolutely determined to attract the most customers to their stall. Any entertainment to attract a crowd, mm. singers, musicians, acrobats, stilt walkers, fools, anything you could get your hands on. Yeah, I think there might have been a bit more to it than that, though, because as we'll discover later, a lot of these fairs are very tied up with this kind of 
enactment performance of authority mm. and going right back to your Roman circus, which was part of, if you like, the polis and mm. the, the contract between mm. emperor and people that the emperor would provide this entertainment and then the crowd would accept the authority mm. of the emperor. And you find this with like Byzantine chariot racing as well. And this comes right the way through all kinds of cultures. You're absolutely right. That mm. is central. I was just big flippant. Of course. Of course, of course, yeah. <laughs> you know, we should begin to focus on the greatest of the Irish fairs, mm -hmm. the Oinig. Yes. Now, those were much more than markets or commercial gatherings, weren't there? Uh, yes, to say the least. And Oinig, we've covered before, it's a very important institution in early Irish society. It could only be convened by an over-king. So that's a king who had other kings beneath him. Didn't matter Client if he had kings. loads. Client kings, exactly. Now, these were times when new laws could be promulgated, which means that those laws could be announced to the public and then officially enacted from this day forward in that sense. And even treaties then would become official and be mm. announced and told to the people at an oinuk. It's very likely there were also, if you like, court proceedings that would have happened in the context of the Oinuk. And this would have included the redistribution of wealth after somebody's death. So the reading and enacting of a will would Probate. have happened. Yes, that's the term I was looking for. Thank you. So not your average craft market then? Well, no, not, not quite. And not only... <laughs> Now, we have recently found a wonderful resource to look at the idea of the Oinuk, and that is the Oinuk Project, which was established by Patrick Leeson as part of his PhD researches. This is, it was a short-term research project. It was based out of the Department of Archaeology at the University College of Cork, but it was very much a multidisciplinary survey and... It was an analysis of well-known and securely identified Oinuk landscapes throughout Ireland. Mm -hmm. And of course, one of the reasons we like it is because a lot of it was around trying to match up textual record What's with actually there in the ground. The archaeology, exactly. And the We're landscape, all, yeah. the real landscape yeah. tied to the text. Exactly. So, And he describes it as being multiscalar as well as interdisciplinary. Now, needless to say, this research has been really valuable for what we're doing. And I will bring in a few quotes from an article that he published, which was called Kingdoms, Communities and Civil Society in Early Medieval Ireland. And we could put a link to the project as well, couldn't oh, we? We'll definitely put in a link to the Oinic project, which is on a WordPress site. Um, this article, unfortunately, you have to go through academia.edu in order to access it. But we'll put up any links that we can because it it's is well fascinating and it's got lots of different levels to it so mm. whether you're looking at the archaeological the historical the textual he's looking to bring all those in together and this is what we like <laughs> well we have as we said discussed the oinoch assemblies on more than one occasion but they're so central to early irish society aren't they they really are and they reflect the structures of society as well so what would you say were their main functions well, primarily, the Oinuk is a legal political institution. There have been theories in the past that think they might have developed out of kind of funerary rites or funeral mm -hmm. games. And again, other people proposing that they're matters of economic expediency. Mm. So people coming together for trade and market. And what Gleason is very strong on is their central role in the politic community life in medieval Ireland. The way he describes them is as the principal assembly of a kingdom and or community 
wherein the allegiance, kinship and political economy were negotiated, agreed and renewed. So the place where the truth of the king could be demonstrated and shown to be effective. Absolutely. What is also good about this is that he's done much more work on this than Hogan did in his day. I mean, when we were discussing Oynix before, mm. I had to refer to Hogan's onomasticon and... and Thankfully, work has been done since then. It means there are now a good many identified Oinox sites around the country. And what these sites have in common in archaeological terms is they show remains of feasting, but also of craft working and crop processing. Mm -hmm. What they don't have is the structures or the hearth places, which would be the conventional markers for permanent habitation. Mm -hmm. So they're not permanently inhabited, but they do have regular use. And now this corresponds really beautifully with the textual descriptions of Oinig as spaces that are set aside for the paying of tributes, for giving or exchanging gifts, which would seal mm -hmm. alliances, whether it's a marriage or a, a treaty between two of them, but also for those tax returns <laughs> that we were talking about when we were discussing Maka and the nature of the Oinuk in that context. Mm -hmm. What's important as well about them as landscapes is that, as Gleason says, these landscapes were places for assembling the communities of living and dead from their inception. Now, yeah, we have talked before, more than once, yes. about the truth of the king through his poet, connecting him with the poetic inspiration of the other world. Mm. Now, this would also link him to the voice of his ancestors, and that's exactly what you're describing. That is absolutely it, and this might be why these Oinuk sites that have been identified so often include burial grounds, the traditional and long-term use, very late Iron Age burial grounds. they near burial grounds. Or on burial mounds themselves. Yes. And now, not only are these obviously important places for that kind of bringing the living and the dead together, they also often mark the boundaries between Tuatha. Mm -hmm. So they're kind of the edge markers for someone's territory. These boundary lines between the two are often still only within about 600 metres of contemporary parish boundaries. Even today. Right up till today. So these are very long-standing geographical units and community units, you know, yeah. kinlands, if you like. And places of significance yes. that have been there for a very, very long time indeed. Absolutely, yeah. Now, in terms of this sort of burial ground element, Gleason points out that while burial itself is not assembly, the act of burying in a place used for local assembly says important things about the nature of kin group identity and how it was expressed and articulated in relation to more encompassing scales of polity and community. Mm. It's central. It is. Well, it's central and it's edge. You know, mm. where you bury people is where you live. You know, it's so fundamental to that part of our identity as a community. I was going to say, these are places where identity is recognised and held. Yes, and then renewed as well. And renewed in the landscape. Yeah. Earlier on, I did refer to these very early Christian churches, the Dovnuk churches which were being deliberately placed in Oinuk sites. Mm -hmm. Now this is partly a kind of a continuity of authority because the Oinuk would have been held in a place that held this sense of authority for kings and for over kings but there was another motivation going on which is that these early Christian sites are often referred to as conversion sites or conversion era because there was a 
project of Christian conversion of the elite, the aristocrats, the kings and the overkings. So you want to place your church near to where those aristocrats are going to be getting together on a regular basis. And some of the evidence for the continuity of the Oinoch site as a whole, the landscape as a whole, is that after these late Iron Age burial mounds were no longer being used, they stopped using them to bury people around the 6th or 7th century, and the burial shifted into the Dovnuk graveyard. But the old burial mounds continued to be used as the Oinoch site, well yeah. into the 10th century and beyond, into the 11th century. And this really resonates with what we were saying earlier about the pre-normal markets and fairs in the UK mm. being held in churchyards. Exactly. Exactly the same thing is happening. Yeah, and it gives us a good context and a nice sort of story to understand how and why that was happening. But this positioning in the landscape, I think, is so important in understanding the role of the Oinoch as a history-making exercise a continuing history making by citing yourself in this traditional place where your ancestors are buried you're saying this is the story of our people so far up until now yeah now we need to add the next chapter we need to say this is what's happening now and this is what's going to happen again and the this story is... so far exactly but it also gives a, a new flavor i think to some of the dinyanica stories that we looked at and there are a good few Dinyanikas which are about the establishment of Oinuk sites and indeed of the Oinuk themselves. Yeah, the foundation stories. Exactly. And this is what we had with the story of Maka and about, even though there is a fair and Oinuk already happening in the story of Maka, there's also this sense of saying that the fair that's now at Evon Maka commemorates Maka and her death. So it's that lovely two-way thing that you get with Dinyanikas. But there's the one that is oft quoted of the fair of Talchen, and Talchen being the big fair for the king of Tara, which was the king of Meath. And most of what most people know about that is Log instituting it in commemoration of his foster mother Taltu. And there's a good few of these that I've come across from time to time where people say, well, this Dinyanicus is the only evidence for this character and that the name itself seems to be more about a geographical feature than about mm. a person and their qualities. We've commented on some ourselves. We have. And there's a nice example that Gleeson gives, which has to do with the fair at Nina. Now, Nina is the county town for North Tipperary, but its name comes from Onoinuk. So the name of the town means the fair. Uh, but that this was the, the Oinuk for... East Munster but there's a traceable story where the Oinuk site was moved from Nina to a site outside of Nina called Tullahidi and Gleeson proposes that Tullahidi could be Tullach Teja. It's a flat landscape there isn't mm -hmm. really you know a big hill there to warrant it being called a Tullach but that because they moved the Oinuk then they had to create this story of someone called Teja who's then being commemorated in this Oinuk and it's part of the establishment of East Munster as a political entity in mm. its own right, as distinct from West Munster. So you're really developing places of ceremony yeah. and feasting mm. and celebrating. Yeah, and of kind of creating and marking identity, History making. Absolutely history making, yeah. And of course, what better way or what other way would there be to do this history making than through performative acts mm -hmm. through performance and celebration and recitation in terms of what's often thought of as entertainment at an oinuk whether it's the telling of stories or the contests it's worth noting that 
From as early as the 7th century, the Irish were using terms like circio or theatrum. Circus and theatre. Exactly. They were using them not just as glosses, but sometimes for a synonym for the term oinach. And Gleeson is keen to point out that this is part of a pan-European assembly practice and that core to those practices were the games, the contests and the performances and the ceremonies. And this was part of that contract, that reciprocation between the ruler and the populace. Now they were creating ceremonial theatrical landscapes. Exactly. And that the landscapes themselves both create the theatre and are created in order to make the theatre. And so the performances that would have happened at an oinach, they were both demonstrative, displaying who sat where and who had what authority, but they were also discursive. They were also a process of shifting and changing status and relationship. So it had both a, a, a reinforcing quality and a reinventing quality. And I mean, the most basic form of theatre that you can get is a procession through the landscape. Who is walking behind or in front of whom, showing their Who's status? Who's allowed to wear what? Exactly. Who carries what? Yeah. Who says what? What direction are they coming from? And what story are they telling? Exactly. All of this is about, you know, performative contracts. Because as we've said so often, any kind of contract from, you know, you lend me five cows and I'll pay you back in three years to the contract between Tuatha that created your kings and over kings. These were oral. They weren't written. And being oral, they had to be performative. They had to be demonstrated in front of witnesses, an audience. And so it, they're fundamentally theatrical. Do you know this I recognise? Yes. This I really <laughs> recognise. Theatrical, ceremonial landscapes or environments are just so frequent throughout history and all around the world. Exactly. Now, I'm reminded of the great central courts of the Minoan centres, named Palaces by Arthur Evans, where it's likely that the ceremonial drama and the bull dances as illustrated in frescoes and sculptures mm. that are quite familiar to people, and that's where they were undertaking mm. in public as a form of theatre. Yes, yeah. And if you think about it, even Greek theatre developed in Athens to support and develop community understanding and involvement of the democratic political process. That was its purpose. Exactly. Yeah. It wasn't entertainment. Mm-hmm. And all these deliberately designed ceremonial landscapes, well, they've been recognised from Neolithic times and even earlier, as I think I can show later. Yes. All of this performance, and that includes storytelling, played a really core role in the Oinach events. And it's fundamental. It is utterly fundamental. It's not just about the Oinach, it's also about being fundamental to human society. This is reflected by the Oinach. The Oinach is so much the community or society in miniature, isn't it? Yeah, And and it's a a sample uh, of the way the larger community was functioning. And storytelling was important at the Oinach. It was crucial to it. We did say before, when we looked at the poem on the Oinach of Carmen, which was a major Leinster Oinach that went on every three years, but it's got this great Dinyanicus which lists everything that happens on each day and will repost the poem itself so you can go through all of its wonderful detail. It does include the tale lists, the lists of all the different tale types of the Fenian and the Imrova and all the rest of it that are right to be told 
during the fair at Carmen. I seriously wondered if we do actually have echoes, hints maybe, of survivals of ceremonial performances, that we still have them. The Moitura saga, and I've said this before, mm. just could have been an archaic tale retained and told times appropriate to this reciprocation between ruler and populace, mm. to use the phrase you used earlier. That the Moitura story so much demonstrates the truth of the king overset and set to right again. Mm. And it seems a perfect example of this archaic performative drama that could have been central to any such assembly. Absolutely. If I were to argue this further, I would say that we can see the continuation right down into the 19th century when storytellers' repertoires continued to be organised into groups suitable for telling its specific domestic effects. Exactly. Uh, births, christening, voyages, mm. etc. Celtic heritage, which I think is something of a storyteller's handbook, yes. even offers colophons which have been added to story groups. For example, the devil could not enter a house where Fenian stories were being told. Yeah. Or um, a year's good luck if the toyin is related in full in this place. Exactly. Yeah. I'm quoting from memory. But it clearly demonstrates that they held more than an entertainment factor. I think so, yeah. To put it mildly. <laughs> so what do we know about the seasonal frequency of these gatherings? That's a slightly more complicated question <laughs> than it at first appears. Not only were the gatherings themselves multi-layered and multifocal, that is just a reflection of the way that power and kingship mm -hmm. in particular were multi-layered and multifocal in early Ireland. Now, earlier you were saying about the fairs in post-Norman England and how they were granted by royal franchise. So mm -hmm. the king says you can do it. In Ireland, there was never the king. Kingship yeah. was always multifarious. Never was one king. No, and it never shifted around. No, there was never a high king of Ireland, historically speaking. But also kingship would shift, that there would be changing relationships between under-king and over-king. This is the mm. client kings that we were talking about. And that this structure was reflected in assembly practices. So the oinuk that we've been describing, that can only be called or convened by an over-king and so on, that's the top-level assembly. Mm. Mm. And in fact, the poem of Carmen says that that oinuk happened every three years. Mm. So think of it a bit like an Olympic Games cycle. I was going to say, like, oh, yeah, one yeah. of the four Greek Games. <laughs> exactly. A regional Games that people might travel to from yeah. other tours. Exactly. Yeah. Because it, it was had to be a big one where mm. people came from long distances and took preparation and organisation. Mm. But Gleeson does speculate, and I think he's probably right, that there would have been smaller gatherings, getting togethers and meetings within each individual mm. tuas. And that would have taken place, well, first of all, more frequently because mm. you've got kind of the, the village business to run mm -hmm. or the town council to meet. So they would have happened at a place that was significant to the local, local yeah, kindred. I think there are echoes of those in the landscape too. For instance, quite near here is the Playbank. Oh, yes. And that is more, in modern times, known as one of the faction fight sites. Mm. But it's more likely to have been a local assembly site. Absolutely, I think yeah. we can still find them if we look, but there's I, no yeah. definite proof. Yeah, again, these would be things that were more difficult, I would say, to pin down archaeologically. Partly, they may have shifted around mm -hmm. as families changed and grew, you know, because mm -hmm. we're talking about very small units of community here and in a very dispersed landscape. But the Oinuk was the top-level one. Now, as for these various levels of gathering together. There may have been big ones that 
were convened at the times of the agricultural festivals of Imbolc and Beltna and uh, Lunasa and so on. But the Oinuk, the top level ones, seem to have been focused around Lunasa, which is August. And now that makes an awful <laughs> lot of sense. That's really. It's a good time of year to get crowds together in the great outdoors, even if we do sometimes still need a marquee. It might even be the best time of year when the turf is firm enough for Probably the big horse races. Possibly the only time. I know, I know. Midwinter wouldn't have been the time of choice for a regional gathering. <laughs> no. Anyone who knows Ireland will realise that there are mud issues. Yes, to put it mildly, and at the moment we currently have <laughs> flood, flood issues. issues. I'm quite lucky that we are not underwater or Look, sitting in a boat coming, as coming into Carrick today uh, there are so many different detours oh, I know that it's hard to get into town because of the floods yes yeah it really is uh, quite something yeah not the time when you want to be bringing in five 16 different tooth from across the province is it these what I call the agricultural festivals mm. Samhain and Bialtan that the reason they're agricultural is because, you know, it's the time of sowing, the time of growing, the time of harvesting. And yeah. those are marker points in an agricultural year. But a pre-agricultural society, they might have timed things more along solar marker points. So that's where you would get ah, your equinoxes and your solstices. That's why we may have to go much further back to find good examples for midwinter gatherings. Exactly. Now, a perfect example is the Boyne Valley Complex. Yes. Now, this, which we often refer to as Newgrange, just in shorthand, if you like, it's a complex which is about 5,000 years old. It was built approximately around 3,200 BCE. Although the Caramore Complex in the west of Ireland, not far from Sligo and closer to here, is easily a 1,000 years earlier. Well, yes, but we have everything earlier over here, um, this side of the country. But we've covered the story of this Boyne Valley complex in more than one episode. We're not going to give too detailed a description here today, perhaps just as briefly as we possibly can. This Boyne Valley Newgrange complex, there are about 40 cairns in total. Um, the best known are these major tumuli of Newgrange, Nouth and Douth. They have all these satellite mounds around them. This complex was highly organised ceremonial and celebratory landscape and that its connection and alignment with times of the year is very central to understanding the place. And it went on being a very special place over a very long period. Mm. Structures continued to be built there right into the early Christian period, didn't they? They did, and beyond from what I remember, the really crucial aspect of Newgrange for our current discussion is what happens around the winter solstice. Oh, yes. Yeah. Now, just in case you live under a rock and you don't know, what happens is that for a number of days around midwinter, the light of the rising sun enters the central chamber of Newgrange, but enters it through this light box, which is like a little fan-like window over the door. And the tunnel inside is pitched so that you're then mm -hmm. standing at the level of the light box. And... The whole passage is illuminated yeah. in the most magical way. I know, and I've only seen photographs. This light box was rediscovered in the 1960s when Professor Michael O'Kelly went to do a dig on the site. But it wasn't completely unknown. And this is a story I think I got off you mm -hmm. initially, which is that there were an awful lot of local stories about how 
the the light used to go into the chamber. Yeah, they used to think it was midsummer. The memory yeah. of it was at midsummer. This whole place had been lost and mm. covered. It was just a big for centuries. Hill of a big green hill. Yeah, and yet there was this story that mm. something special happened there. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Professor O'Kelly discovered the box and, and realized that the stories were true. I know it's one of those kind of you would love to be that archaeologist mm. on that day, wouldn't you? And now a lottery allows fifty people inside each year. Yeah. From the 18th to the 23rd of December. Mm. And the entries for Solstice 2015, which are chosen by the children at a local school, mm. there were 30,475 entries. I looked it up. And I wasn't one of the successful people. You applied, didn't I, you? Well, I've applied a couple of times. <laughs> now, I have been there on the solstice, but unfortunately, not inside at dawn. No, no. And it's the whole thing is being inside and the way that the light mm. enters the chamber. But what we're really talking about here is that this Brunabogna, Newgrange, was a, such a central and important place, but really deeply connected with midwinter celebrations at least 5,000 years ago. There's always Darrington Walls. Isn't that on the other island somewhere near Stonehenge? Yes, yes it is. But I think it's relevant because people used to think that Stonehenge stood in glorious isolation. Mm. Now it turns out that it was a part of a major Neolithic landscape dating back some 4,500 years. In recent times, the Sheffield University Riverside Project has just turned the story on its head. <laughs> But what is pertinent to this particular podcast episode is that they found a wide avenue leading down to the River Avon. Now, that river also used to flow right up close to Stonehenge mm. as well. And archaeologists have found evidence of conspicuous feasting, which are mostly pig bones. Mm. And they suggest by the age of the pigs, they may have been consumed at midwinter feasts. Right, right. Now, they're painting a picture of a settlement, perhaps seasonal or, or semi-permanent, with gatherings of people feasting and then offering the remains of their ancestors to flow on through the river to the stone-built houses of eternity. Yes. However, the story's continuing. Yeah. Because I've just been reading about another more recent project, which is called Hidden Landscapes, and that's carried out by Birmingham University and the Ludwig Boltzmann Institute, if I'm pronouncing that right. <laughs> now, they've revealed evidence for a large stone monument mm. hidden underneath the bank of the, the later Superhenge, Durrington Walls, oh. which is really beginning to change the picture. Uh, yeah. Now, it's all been undertaken using non-invasive geophysical exploration and remote sensing technologies. So it's all really state-of-the-art stuff. Yeah. So the picture's not complete. It certainly isn't. And, I mean, for a lot of us, it was enough to learn that Stonehenge wasn't on its own. There was also this Durrington Wall. Connected with midwinter and not midsummer. Not midsummer. I wonder how that's going to change the story of this landscape. <sighs> but that element of the midwinter feasting, I think, is very much relevant to what we're talking about mm -hmm. today mm -hmm. but it's so hogfather oh. you know <laughs> Terry Pratchett got it right didn't, didn't he <laughs> I don't know about specifically midwinter activity but seasonal ceremonial ritualistic gatherings can be recognized from much earlier than 5,000 years <laughs> much earlier last year I got to go to Gobekli Tepe. Yes, and I have seen some, a small percentage of your photographs. I know, I was very excited. <laughs> now, this site in eastern Turkey, not so far from the Syrian border, was discovered by German archaeologist Klaus Schmidt. Now, he'd previously worked on a Navali Kori site and dig, which is now flooded. 
Gobekli Tepe is made up of a series of round, high stone-walled enclosures and inside these circular walls are a series of three metre or so high, beautifully worked T-shaped limestone pillars mm. and they're intricately carved with animals yeah. in very high relief. Mm. There's snakes, boars, gazelles, scorpions, foxes and even, I gather now, what are being regarded as abstract symbols. Oh, yeah. Almost a precursor of pictograms wow yeah 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 this is just speculation at the moment yes but there was also these taller sort of t-shaped monoliths that were at the center of some of these enclosures and some of them had carvings on that really are kind of abstracted human figures yeah that's right the belief is that these are definitely intended to be human figures mm. they're headless and they're elongated mm. and very geometric in style and quite different to anything else that's visible carved anywhere in the place yeah because all those animal carvings they're so naturalistic and they're mm. so familiar mm. there's even one which is just redolent of nothing more than that row of plaster ducks <laughs> <laughs> and that is actually carved at the foot of one of these abstract geometrical yeah. headless figures yeah they're gorgeous who seem to be at the center of the world mm. holding up the place mm. almost as if they're ancestor figures yeah it's of course we haven't a clue no. it's impossible to tell mm. Now, the smooth, regular finish on the monoliths, and it is smooth, mm. so smooth, it looks as though it's modern. Mm. The quality of the carving, even the terrazzo floors, now that's a concrete-like material made from burnt lime and not used again, apparently, until the Renaissance. <laughs> now, these are breathtaking. Mm. But what is truly astonishing is that these enclosures are dated between 9 and 10,000 BCE. Yes, 12,000 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's just quite mind-boggling to try and understand that and to try and just get your head around it. But I mean, that 12,000 years ago, that's before the conventional dates given for like the domestication of animals or agriculture and even permanent human settlements. Oh, well before. Yeah, what are thought of as, if you like, the first towns or cities. Because these are so remarkable mm. and so very early, the site has just been jumped on by both alien and angel, that is Nephilim nuts. Well, do you think that it might be possible to roast <laughs> some Nephilim nuts? Not even at Christmas. That's, Don't try it. That's pity. Unfortunately, in my opinion, um, Schmidt describes the Gobekli Tepe complex as uh, made up of temples and suggests, or seems to suggest in his book, that hunter-gatherers before settlements and agriculture and domestication of animals first gathered together for religious reasons mm. and he is meaning to worship the gods yeah now personally i feel this is a bit misleading now just let me add i have to say this i've absolutely no criticism whatsoever of schmidt as an archaeologist mm. he is or was he sadly died last year mm. he was very thoughtful and, and did a great job at thinking things through. Very mm. careful to say we haven't a clue what's yes, going on. Yeah. True, the site has yielded no traces at all of habitation, mm. i.e. no middens, no water source, no houses, no hearths, no roofs, no domestic plants or animal remains. But this doesn't automatically imply religious activity as we would understand it today. No, indeed. And that description could so easily fit with one of those Oinach sites that we were talking about earlier yeah, that yeah. one of the things that marks them as an Oinach site is the lack of permanent habitation those structures and the hearths mm. and so on but they clearly were used 
for big gatherings of people. Mm, as were many other Neolithic sites. Yes, yeah. And I, I tend to feel part of the problem is a slight language issue of translation between the technical use of a term like temple. Which is not technically incorrect. It's not in archaeological terms, but the way that lay people understand it has all these other connotations yeah. go along with it. But even if you come much more to the modern world, Greek, Roman, ancient Egyptian temples, sorry I'm using that as modern, but it is yeah, compared yeah. <laughs> They were not churches as mm. we understand it. I mean their functions were, oh, to be everything from gathering places, performance places, banks, yeah. treasure houses. Law courts. Yeah, as yeah. well as uh, so-called contacting the gods or yeah. giving offerings to the gods. That was only one of their f many roles. Yeah, I often feel we would understand them better as community halls in cer certain respects. And actually that would apply very much to the pre-Reformation church as well. Yes, It's yeah. only since the post-Reformation we've got this idea of a building that is just for the worship of God. Exactly. Now, Ian Hodder, who is an anthropologist and archaeologist best known for his work along years of work at Chateau Hoyuk, mm. and a great hero of mine, <laughs> does say that Quebecli Tepe changes everything. Yeah. Mind you, Hodder admits that V. Gordon Child's model of the Neolithic Revolution has become largely discredited. Okay, hang on a second. First of all, what is the Neolithic Revolution? Well, in basic terms, it refers to the sudden transition from nomadic hunting and gathering to settled agriculture. Okay. Ian Hodder's problem is that the domestication of animals and settlement happened more slowly and was far more diversified than Child implies in his model. Right. Gebekli Tepe, he feels, shows that it was the need for socialisation that led people to gather and keep investing in cooperative activity mm. by around 10,000 BC, as early as that. Right. I suppose what he means is that hunter-gatherers were already committing to cultural, ritual, social, celebratory events. And this meant that the ongoing, continuing effort led to people staying together long enough to have time to focus on these initial experiments in agriculture. Right, yes. I, I like the way he puts it. Yes, it's, it's switching around the order or the priority a bit. It does, though, give rise to the question of why people felt this need to come together and create these social institutions. Yeah, I was thinking about this. Mm. I wondered if the commitment might be focused on the need to swap things and people, mm. I, you know, trade and marriage. Yeah. Now, that's, if you think about it, is a very dangerous process <laughs> because it requires establishment of individual and group identity, mm. careful management of status, yeah. uh, perhaps even including connection and sharing of ancestor images, symbols and stories. That's dangerous. It is. And maybe it is that that trade or exchange and the ritual space that's needed to make that safe... Maybe that was the impetus for the first settlements. Although I would point out that in Patrick Gleason's work on the Oinig, he suggests that they are essentially a dispersed people who are gathering regularly in order to keep that social cohesion, that sense of identity, the kinship and so on, and that the trade was kind of a secondary feature of those people coming together. There's a lot to think about. Yeah. And I find Ian Hodder's way of looking into the, the topic very helpful. Yeah.
And Patrick Gleason's too. Yeah. There's one other site that I still like to throw into the mix. Yeah. Now, as I said earlier, Ian Hodder is the archaeologist who's been primarily responsible for all the years of work on one of the oldest settlement sites in the mm. world. That's Chateau Hoyuk. Yeah. That settlement dates from around uh, 7,500 BCE. And it's in what is now south-central Turkey, near a place called Konya, mm -hmm. uh, where the Sufis come from. Oh, nice, yes. Now, along with Jericho, it's considered to be one of the oldest uh, settlements, or, if you like, early towns in the world. Mm. Now, I went there last year. Chattelhoek, not Jericho. No, I still want to go to Jericho. <laughs> I'm still working on that one. Yeah. Now, I could talk about the place in detail. But and I, for a long time. No, I really need to try and give a brief dis description, yeah. if I can. Yes. But it needs a bit of explanation. Now, for a start, there are no streets. The settlement's like a gigantic honeycomb. And instead of independent structures, the people chose to build their houses joined to each other on all sides. Huh. Now, each house has four independent walls, yeah. but there's no space between the houses. Mm. And of course, over the centuries, they've been built on top of each other. So I think there's now about 18 levels, Gosh. but there weren't 18 levels at the time. It's one at a time. Mm, mm, mm. Now, the roofs of the town acted as the streets and the entrance to the house was from the top, from right. the roof. So they went down little ladders nice. into their house, houses, <laughs> then came out, walked across the roofs. <laughs> Now, some of the homes are quite beautifully decorated with wall paintings of animals and people. And there's even one famous picture at one level that looks as if it's a map of a nearby settlement that was destroyed by a volcano. Huh. So that's particularly sophisticated. Yeah. yeah. The houses also, so I've read, are remarkably clear of rubbish. Ah, they're good housekeeping mm. services. <laughs> now, of course, this description is just woefully inadequate. <laughs> It's well worth reading Ian Hodder's book on the excavation. It's called The Leopard's Tale, mm. and I can put a link to a really good talk he gave on both sites. Oh, yes. That's Chateauhoyuk and Gwebekli Tepe. It seems that as people came together, they became involved in an increasingly dense support network. It seems so. And from this in interaction developed the social rules and structures that held that settlement together. Yeah, yeah. Now, in Hodder's writings and speakings, can he give an account of how it was Chateauhoyuk was so stable and it was successful, I think, for over a thousand years? Is that what you yeah, said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is extraordinary for any settlement. But uh, what would you see as the most significant aspects of life in the settlement? Well, what I think is most interesting is there's absolutely no ritual centre, mm. no... Uh, palace or temple there are no priests no one seems to have higher or lower status and that seems, seems to include the women mm. uh, there are no higher or lower status areas either right. in fact Ian Hodder describes it as aggressively egalitarian <laughs> that's very nice now there's also no evidence during the whole thousand years of battle or conflict from outside huh. the, the, the settlement. Now it's true that they were fairly isolated, but that doesn't usually seem to stop. No, that no. <laughs> he also comments that skulls have regularly been found with depressed fractures, <laughs> but he reckons that this suggests non-lethal contacts, right, rather than conflict itself. Yeah, so it sounds very much like our familiar boasting champions. I, maybe they were trying out the beheading game I for themselves. <laughs> But I like that because it fits with wider mammalian behaviours where males certainly do 
contest against each other for dominance and in order to establish status and hierarchy. But in the rest of the animal kingdom, they rarely inflict lasting damage on each yeah, other. Yeah. So it's that seems testing more... Testing each other's skills. It's yes. almost like uh, animals at play too. Exactly. But they often are, they're measuring up. They're not actually trying to hurt each other. Hmm. You know, hmm. they're saying, I could hurt you. <laughs> But again, the, the, the pictures on the walls are generally not hunting images. They look like hunting mm. images, and they've often been described as hunting images, but Ian Hodder says they're definitely not. Mm. They're people who are teasing or baiting or taunting animals as a group, as a social activity. A bit like something, the bull run in Pamplona, for yeah, example. Yeah, or, or the bull dancing rituals from My No and Crete. Mm. Now, it's certain that this these activities are followed by the killing of animals and feasting, but then it goes on, because after this, teeth, horns, etc., other bits of animals, uh, like the bunkrana, the two horns and the oh, skull, yes. are bought, brought in as memories or mementos of these important social events mm. and then displayed inside certain of the houses. Okay. The ones that uh, Ian Hodder calls the history houses, the yes. ones that keep holding the decoration and the memories that's yes. that's really nice so yeah. he he the memory houses mm. and this seems they seem to last for more generations than other houses do okay, yeah. and yet they're not bigger or have more obviously higher status mm. than any other house mm. it's quite interesting quite difficult to describe yes it seems as though that the the collective ritual action focused on around this baiting and killing and feasting of wild animals mm. and then creating memories of the events. Yeah. And Inhod is suggesting that animal domestication seemed to develop from acting out this these social unifying rituals mm. and that domestication of the animals was almost a byproduct. Right, yes. <laughs> and it was not only the animal parts that were brought into the settlement. Oh, yeah. They played around with human bones in the same way. They received similar treatments. Yeah, and I was just wondering about the kind of burial practices they found at Chateau Yeah, I have to say that it's not the hunting and killing and display of humans. <laughs> I didn't mean that. <laughs> but after people died, yeah. their bones didn't always rest in peace. <laughs> uh, people were buried under the floors of some of the houses. Mm. It seems like the history houses where they were mostly buried. Mm. However, bones, heads especially, moved around. Mm. So they were decorated, maybe covered in clay to restore the features. Right. And then displayed and later deposited in significant places. Right. Now... One important thing, so I've read, that these burials did not relate to genetic family groups. Yeah. Some houses had up to 62 burials and others none. Mm. So the ones with 62 burials are far too many for any family yes. group, even an extended family yeah. group, where others have no burials whatsoever. Mm. Human body parts circulated around the whole community. Yeah. Now, it's interesting. I've heard there are still some uh, societies now in the world that do keep their ancestors mm -hmm. above ground. It and, wasn't and hand them around. And you it know. wasn't uncommon in other early society groups, but it's very, very specific in this one. Yeah, and didn't you say that part of that and part of that analysis of, you know, the genetic relationship showed that they did also practice fostering? Yes, yeah. It was, uh, they haven't found DNA, but stable isotope analysis of teeth mm. showed that children from one house were regularly brought up by another house. Now, as we know from the importance to early Irish society, fosterage creates this very strong interlinked web of support networks and loyalties mm, mm. that extend beyond the immediate 
immediate family group. Yeah. Now, Ian Hodder refers to this focus on ancestry as creating time depth. Now, I love the term mm. time depth. The time depth, he explains, is needed before agriculture can develop mm. so that herding, farming, planting and harvesting require trust and time depth because of the inevitable delay between the work input that everybody does mm. and the shared outcomes and benefits. Yeah, it's definitely a community that is investing in a future. He also says that this process of history making happened very early, well before hunter-gatherers settled. So mm. he's talking about the time of Gobekli Tepe. This history making was already happening. Yeah, yeah. And I think the site bears it out. Mm. He says that history making creates the earliest drive to agriculture mm. and he calls this process entanglement now i'm oversimplifying horribly i know i am and i apologize to ian Harder because i'm doing my best but i do re recommend reading his book entanglement yeah what it sounds like to me is that this is describing the point in our development as human culture if you like when we invented time you know, that we had to imagine a future and a past in order mm. to work together for this result that's neither immediately tangible nor a result that's profitable to one individual. Yeah, it's not like just going out and killing an animal and taking it home to and eat immediately. Exactly, yeah. And after all, this idea of a group, a community investing in a future project enables communities to come together to build these great monuments that will, won't be completed until mm. several generations down the line. Or will still be there after you've left the story. Exactly, yes, yes, yes. And once you have invented time in this way, then you need to start marking time and giving it names and noting its passage. And so time becomes a cultural artefact That's itself. That's a very good way of putting it. Mm. I like that. Yeah, but it's not only about the future. Once you've invented the future, then you also invent the past. And the same goes for that significance of the presence of the ancestors, mm. because that's about inventing your past and imagining your past as a cultural artefact. So then... The community can create a space where those ancestors, which are the past, the objects of the past, can bear witness to contracts and agreements for working in the future. And this significance will then get encoded both in objects and in structures and in the landscape itself. And I think that's how I understand entanglement. Well, it's certainly why stories and places are one and the same thing in Ireland, yeah. as we've found in the Oinig. Yeah. Uh, the Dinhianicus and the burial grounds unite a community in a shared past so they can cooperate in a shared future. Exactly. I think you've got it right, and mm. it's absolutely true when looking at the Oinic sites. Isn't it? You know, right the way through all of this discussion, I keep thinking how many features there are in common between what Hodder found in Shattlehoyek and our early medieval Irish <laughs> gatherings. You know, I think so. Even though we seem to be comparing two communities so widely separated by space and by time. Absolutely, yeah. But there was no direct or indirect historical connection Goes between these yeah. communities. But what that shows is that some of the early and the medieval Irish practices that we have discussed and discovered have roots in a really deep past. I think investment in history making is key to both. Yeah. 
both show deep connections to ancestors who are in many ways still present. Mm. In the Irish stories, the other world is parallel rather than serial, so time depth is a prime factor. Yeah, and further than that, all those very mundane-seeming things like lawmaking or the promulgation of laws also arises out of this. We find that these gatherings are about the adaptation and the reinforcement of the social contract and that that is witnessed by the living alongside the dead. And this is for the sake of creating future prosperity. Yeah, they're adding to the narrative. The community is coming together to tell the story so far yeah. and then together add the most recent chapter to that story, their chapter of the story. Exactly. And these are both about ritual gatherings which have this element of the baiting, the hunting, the killing and the feasting of these wild animals. I mean, let's have a look at that whole story of the champion's portion. And if you think about it, that is taking a part of an animal, yeah. bringing it into the into the house to become a special feature, yeah. and then giving it to a, yeah, an is... important person in the current part of the story. Yeah, the exemplar the for their community, a culture hero. That's a better way of it. <laughs> There's also the cultural weapons-based non-lethal contests. Well, they're usually non-lethal, or they're <laughs> supposed to be non-lethal. <laughs> and of course, all the horse racing and uh, other sorts of contests. Yeah, and that horse racing... We haven't really gone into it in a lot of depth here, but it is part of that echo of the baiting of the wild animal and that whole process of domestication. And also I think about wealth display and comparison. Mm. I mean, the Oinuk and those other kind of local gatherings, they support this really crucial building of those dense social networks. And we find that in the Irish, especially through both Fosterage, which we share with Chattelhoyek, and through our hospitality laws. And these are both part of mutuality, which is essential for social cohesion and for success. And those hospitality laws, they are still around us today. And if you think of Father Ted. Yeah. You just go on, go on, go on, go on, go on, go on. You will, you will, you will, you will, you will. And that's only a cup of tea. <laughs> or a cake with cocaine in it. <laughs> Oh, no, I mean raisins. <laughs> okay, go watch Father Ted. There's one thing, though, there is a great difference. Yeah. You couldn't call early medieval Irish society egalitarian, no, however. I mean, status local. is central. Oh, it's utterly crucial. We've discussed this many times before because it's quite difficult to our contemporary egalitarian brains to really understand why early Irish society was so stratified and why there was so much emphasis on status. But it's partly a function of the division of labour. When, when we're talking about Oinic, we're not talking about sort of small farmers and herders mm -hmm. coming together. What we're talking about are rulers, legislators, scholars, merchants, craftspeople and farmers and herders. But they each have their own specific social niche to fill. The more complex society. It is a more complex society, which allows for the flourishing of other kinds of culture. But we've also spoken before about how the development of this complex status system and the legal system are a means of comparing the material 
value and wealth with non-material value and wealth. The Boara with the olive. And come to think of it, there's that wonderful article you wrote a little while ago <laughs> called Cows as Currency. Yes, and that does cover some of that because yeah. you need an exchange rate when you're yeah, dealing yeah. with these different forms and of wealth. That's just been reblogged. Yes, but I think what we really find in examining both the Oinig and those really... I mean, staggeringly ancient settlements and site is that this impetus, this human need to gather together, this communal feasting, this exchange. And that's still at the heart of how we celebrate midwinter, whether that's with or without religious symbolism. So we've brought ourselves back to Christmas somehow, haven't we? Wasn't that nice? So the six million dollar question is, can we find traces of these 10,000 plus year old practices <laughs> in the modern ways that we now celebrate midwinter? Well, that's a huge question. <laughs> and as a folklorist, I'd have to say there are a lot of answers. Yes. <laughs> but we could examine one very particular Irish custom. That's Laurent Drolling. Yeah, now that's the day of the wren. And it's very much an Irish midwinter practice. It happens on St Stephen's Day, which is the day after Christmas Day. In England, known as Boxing Day. Yes, but you don't say that over here unless you want to get lynched. Um, <laughs> Stephen's Day, which is 26th of December. And it involves groups, usually of young lads, who troop around house to house. There's a bit of singing, a bit of dancing. And, and a lot of drinking. A lot of drinking. And it's kind of visiting each house and then being given, often money, there's donations toward the Ram Boys as well. But the important thing is that people are in disguise. Exactly, yeah, yeah. It's that, all about dressing up. That's the most up. important thing. Exactly, yeah. That nobody's supposed to know who anybody else is, therefore anything may happen. It is very much like the trick-or-treat traditions mm -hmm. that are now associated with Halloween, except you're a bit this older. older yeah. oh, well, you know, the, the people involved are a bit older. It's not children, generally. Well, I think it wasn't at Halloween. Well, no, exactly, exactly. But it's probably, if people are trying to imagine it, mm -hmm. I would say, think of it like slightly older, slightly drunker boys. Yeah, trick or treating, trick or -treating. for adults. Yeah. <laughs> with more interesting and weirder costumes. Yeah. But there's still like a rhyme, which is in English. So, you know, it shows it that it's still English. very recent. And it says, the ran, the ran, the, the king, king of, of all birds. birds. On Stephen's day, he was caught in the furs. Up with the kettle and down with the pan. Give us a penny to bury the ran. Now, I gather that people used to carry little cages yeah. with the uh, evergreen in. And yeah. sometimes a small bird. I think there is talk of it once being a captured ran. Yeah. It never is nowadays. No, certainly not. But it is something that is still locally practised. I have friends who grew up in Cavan who would still go back every year. So these are people now in their 40s who mm -hmm. would go back up until a very few years ago and you still see groups doing it around here yeah but they are rather like halloween it's now become a bit of a children's custom again yeah or something that's a tourist thing i know mm -hmm. that in dingle they have a big round boy fair mm -hmm. and parade well, and everything right. like that uh, to be honest it either goes and becomes a tourist thing mm. where adults join in in a yeah. very self-conscious way mm. or it becomes down locally i have seen groups of children yeah. going around on the 26th yeah in the last few years. Yes, yeah. Just collecting pennies and sweets. As we did find earlier, the bigger gatherings, those kind of huge oinaga, they are not practical here in the depths of winter. Besides which, you know, travel is often impossible, as we are finding right now with the floods. Those bigger oinaga, as we said, they're centred around the time of lunacy, mm -hmm. August. And 
in fact, there are still huge amounts of August bank holiday events that go on up and down the country. I think it's the busiest weekend of the year. Yeah, and we even used to do our own Lunacy Games at that time, didn't we? Well, exactly, and with a lot of competition. (laughs) You know, these days, the celebrations have become so laser-focused on Christmas that a lot of practices have been shifted around. A few years ago, I worked with a day centre for older people. Now, the goal of the project was to help them create a book about Christmas. Mm. It was called Candles in the Window. What we've done here is we're just taking a couple of quotes from the recorded conversations Chris had with some of these older people with their memories of Christmas traditions. So these are taken out of Chris's book just to Mm. give a flavour of what that was all about. And they're more or less living memories. These stories come from the late 1930s Mm. up to the 1950s. Yeah, so... So they show how it's come right down to modern day. Oh yeah, absolutely. And this one, in fact, I think really shows that. This is a quote from one of the participants the Rem boys went out collecting the money they would dance the whole night for the money and for the drink that was the Ren dance it was important to travel out of your place and then they wouldn't know where you'd come from then you'd travel by car out of your area and that became the way when they got the cars they'd be able to travel to the towns and you get more money in the towns <laughs> And I tell you, there weren't many cars in rural Ireland, back no. then, even in the 50s. That was a huge technological yeah, innovation. And remember that rural electrification yeah. didn't come to this area until the mid-1950s. Yes. And you might have one or two cars oh, yeah. in a village or small town. Yeah, and yeah. phones were even rarer then. Here's another one. I <laughs> yeah. rather like this one. This mm. was a, a conversation that was collected from one of the women. Yeah. You could dress up. You don't want anyone to know you. You could go out on the road, have a little song, pretend you're carrying the little robin, you know, sing and they won't know you. You don't go to a house that will know you, but when you're dressed up in a man's suit, you have to be very careful because, well, you know, (laughs) you'd steal a man's clothes and everything. (laughs) See, that's fascinating now. And uh, this is really interesting about how you travel out of your local area. And that seems to be very important to the tradition and that you're not known, that you, it's not your neighbours you're and going cr- to. And cross-dressing, which is yeah. not common at that time, no. when women never wore trousers. Exactly. This yeah. would have been, I suspect, post-war, just post-war, yeah. this one. And it's interesting because she says, pretend you're carrying the little robin. Yeah, yeah, even though it's the Randy. <laughs> but it's definitely Randy for her. Exactly. They did tell me that it was the day that young people looked forward to all year. Yeah. It was all work and hard work at the time. Mm-mm. But St Stephen's Day, it was your day off. Yeah. And yeah. young people would go out and they'd have some fun and no questions asked afterwards. Yeah, and I think there was another quote um, when we were reading through these about how you were never allowed to go out dancing and that you had to wait. Your first dance was Stephen's Day when you turned 18. Well, that and was that, one person's experience. Exactly, certainly. yeah. And probably you know. not uncommon. So there you are. There's one of a, a very old custom still practised. Yeah, that really is living memory. Right, so what can we conclude from all this? What, this sweeping gazetteer of 10,000 years of history? Well, (laughs) perhaps when we either attend or set up a stall at a craft fair or a winter market. Or when we compete online for those briefly appearing lightning deals on a mysterious Black Friday. (laughs) A comparatively, well, new to us in Ireland, mysterious occurrence, which, like, within the she-world can explicably extend a single single 24-hour period into 10 days. <laughs> then we're linking to behaviour far older than first appears. <laughs> 
or when we suddenly develop an intense need to eat or even just to, to look at or just buy and leave to rot food that we wouldn't usually dream of including in our diet or indeed indulging in unusually excessive or ridiculously strange alcoholic mixtures that we're ritually linking to our deepest past. <laughs> and when we find ourselves unexpectedly assuming the roles of warrior or judge in ritual tribal status combat, maybe after a Christmas dinner... Or even during Christmas dinner. Well, it's hardly surprising that this deeply significant but dangerous close-to-the-other-world-edge celebration has developed the boundaried ritual activity and safety creating language like peace on earth goodwill toward men which is a wishfully and hopeful ridiculous wish fulfillment or it's for the kiddies which is usually repeated after all this ritual alcohol consumption or the soothing it's the thought that counts when you absolutely hate what you've been given <laughs> Or indeed, when you find yourself begging an otherworld judge or even a fictional character to fulfil your deepest desires and making pledges for future good behaviour, even leaving out offerings of food and drink for this mysterious stranger to come into your home through the chimney and into your children's bedrooms. Right. <laughs> now, I usually intensely dislike walking around shops Christmas. I do Mostly too. because of the Muzak carols. Oh, That's what gets on my nerves. I just take carols full stop and we have this argument every year. I like carols but not in shops. I know. Not I just... when I'm trying to do something else. <laughs> but I've been rescued at times by quietly or not so quietly singing the words to the Cthulhu carols. Yes. You know, it's beginning to look a lot like fishmen. Yes. Etc. <laughs> yeah. But this year, perhaps because I've been mentally reflecting on our winter special podcast, yeah. I've come to think about how much we need this midwinter celebration. Oh, deeply. Which is why it's so culturally pervasive across the world as well. So as we sit down to what is for many a seasonal meat and booze fest or chocolate and booze fest we can console ourselves that this is a memory culture event mm. with significant time depth <laughs> connecting us to our most distant past you know i think entanglement can be quite fun especially certain kinds and it's highly recognizable i think but also very acceptable to our early and medieval Irish ancestors. After all, fair's fair. Well, I hope you have a very happy holiday season. Yes, and we shall see you in 2016. Thank you for listening to Agalath Nanagus, conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists Chris Thompson, and Isolda of Bullocorn Carmody. For more information, to subscribe or make a donation, please visit storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.